Good morning, church. Good to see everybody out today. And uh, we're fighting this uh, cold and all this crazy health issues and thicknesses and everything. But I'm glad you're here to join us. And uh, we're looking forward to the next month or so. Today we're going to wrap up a series that we've been in for a few weeks now. Uh, we kind of, if you're not uh, really familiar how we do it, we preach our sermons in series and kind of go through uh, five, six, seven-week studies normally. And uh, today we we're going to conclude this study we've been in for a few weeks called How to Bible. And uh, we've taken a few weeks just to look at the Bible, the structure of the Bible, the background of the Bible, uh, the inspiration of the Bible, because the Bible is such an important part of our lives. It's where we get all of our source of knowledge about God and what to do. And so we need to be confident of the Bible. And so last week we talked about how to believe the Bible. We talked about the textual credibility, went back and did some background work back uh, years ago his, through history. We talked historical accuracy. We talked about archaeological evidences, which I, I think was interesting too. And today we're going to be talking about science. And uh, you know I'm not a scientist or a professor or anything else, but uh, there are a lot of resources out there, so I'm going to be leaning heavily on others. Uh, but, um, but you know, uh, there are people who spend their lives focusing on the proofs uh, through science and through evidence. And you may not be aware, but we here in Kentucky are pretty blessed here. We have two of the most unusual attractions and, and uh, um, organizations for understanding the Bible. We have the Creation Museum up in uh, near Hebron, Kentucky, which is amazing. And then we have the Ark Encounter just an hour or so north of us. And, uh, you know, either one within a two-hour drive, so we're pretty blessed to have those. If you haven't been to one of those, you should go uh, and visit at least one because both of them were built by an organization called Answers in Genesis that has it as their mission to uh, uh, provide an apologetics ministry or defending the Bible, trying to help defend Christianity and help Christians defend their faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively. And their director is a man named Ken Ham. He's a brilliant guy, really down to earth, Australian, so he's fun to, to listen to too. But uh, Ken Ham, and uh, he's also written a book entitled Already Gone. And that book kind of addresses the exodus of young people who have grown up in the church but have left the church. And you know, we all know that happens sometimes when people leave home and they go to college. And the popular notion has always been that young people, once they get away from their parents, and they have to make their own choices that they will decide not to go to church. But the numbers actually reveal in this study they did that about half the people, uh, before they go to college, they're already gone in high school. Mentally, they've already kind of checked out. And some of that has to do with the fact that they will weigh the, the experiences they have around them and people that they know. They'll weigh that with greater gravity than they would the truth in the Bible. And, and that's kind of alarming, to be honest with you. Almost 40% of children actually have their first doubts about their faith during middle school. And so the authors do a study, study a lot of people. They study 20 to 30-year-old people, 95% of whom had attended church and youth group regularly through their elementary and middle school years. And they studied these, these people, talked to them, and discovered the reasons why they had left the church. And they, they realized that people leave early, and like in middle school, they have their doubts, and uh, they say that the solution to, to resolving this problem is the importance of dealing with the tough questions like we've been dealing with the last few weeks here. Questions such as evolution, biblical authority, supposed Bible contradictions, where do all the different races come from, the problem of evil and suffering, and the reality of miracles. 
And they say we have to stress the authority of the Bible with the goal being to develop a biblical Christian worldview. And that's why I wanted to take some time out here, about five or six weeks, to really look at the Bible, to really get that Christian worldview so that when you go to work or when kids go to school or whatever it might be, they have confidence to say, we know the Bible's true. We can prove that. It's not just what we believe, but there's proofs out there about that. And while we should always look to the Bible for our truth, the reality is we also don't have to be afraid of science and skeptics as well, because the Bible actually is supported by science and discoveries that have been made. And we're going to talk about some of that today. Now, like we said last week, there have never been any valid archaeological discoveries that have proven the Bible wrong. And today we're going to also see that science... Um, will also support the biblical account. And we're going to talk about several things that are related to science and scientific questions. And we're going to do that by looking primarily at the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And you know, um, the, the organization I spoke of, Answers in Genesis, obviously, they believe the answers of almost every, all, all of our questions are in the book of Genesis. So that's kind of why they call themselves that. And it's an awesome book to explain a lot of the questions that we have today. So we're going to talk about science today, and we're going to begin by defining what science is. So what is science? Science is the attempt to discover knowledge through empirical verification or observation. In other words, it's, it's discovering knowledge through what we can prove. Science is observed in five ways, what we see, what we taste, what we hear, what we smell and touch. And you might notice those are the senses you have. And so science can be experienced in those five ways. Science has to be tangible. It, cannot, it can maybe be based on theories, but it can't be proven by theories. It has to be tangible. So science cannot answer questions like, what is the meaning of life? What is the nature of truth? Or is the, does God exist? Science can never approve, approve those things. It can point to the existence of God, and it certainly does, but it will never prove or disprove God. God has not given science that kind of power. That's the nature of science. Whereas the nature of the Bible is different. The Bible does tell us the meaning of life. It does tell us the nature of truth. It does tell us the existence of God. But the Bible doesn't really speak directly a lot about science. So we have to understand that we've got two different worlds that we're looking at here and understand that science cannot speak outside of its realm about what God you know, teaches us in his word. And the Bible chooses not to speak outside of what it is intended to do. And so we take the Bible and we take science and we say, how do they coexist? How do they work together? Now, you and I, we live in a physical world so that we have a lot of questions that kind of relate to science. We have questions like, what do things look like and feel like? Remember the touches, the the senses that we have? We want to experience things that, that way. How do things work? How did they begin? But the Bible wasn't written to explain everything that we might want to know. It really wasn't. We might ask the question, how does all this work? I want to understand it. What about science and archaeology and all the evidences that we see out there? How can I prove to people what the Bible actually says? But you got to understand also that the way we live and think today is not, not really how they thought in that day. See, the Old Testament, specifically the, the, book, of, the, the, the book of Genesis, was written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew thought process was like this. What is this for and does it work? What is it for and does it work? It it doesn't tell us how and why and everything else. For example, everybody would like to know what Jesus looks like. You've probably seen pictures of Jesus. He was white, right? Long, light brown hair and kind of feminine looking. That's the picture we have in our mind, but that's probably not what Jesus looked like. 
The Bible doesn't give us a visual picture of Jesus, but it does tell us who Jesus was and what Jesus wants us to do. Another example in the book of Genesis, we read about creation. We know that according to Genesis, God created everything and it was all good. We know that. But we want to know more, don't we? We want to know how he did it. We want to know how long it took and when it was. But the Bible doesn't tell us all of those things. It wasn't written designed to do that. So we have to keep in mind that what God wants us to know is revealed in the Bible, and what's not important for us to know is not revealed there. And we have to trust God exactly what He says is and isn't, all right? So what I want to do today is is kind of, I want to look at some of the biggest controversies in the book of Genesis, some things that we have questions about, some things we question God about sometime, and try to explain some ways that we can bring science together and reconcile it with the Bible. I don't want you to think that they are in direct conflict with each other all the time, that they disagree. We find a lot of commonness, and again, the science that we have does prove the Bible. Not all of our answers, but it doesn't disprove anything that's in the Bible. So let's talk about some things. Let's talk about the age of the earth. How old is the earth? Well, science tells us that the earth is about 4.54 billion years old, and they base it on radiometric uh, dating. And they call that the old earth. That makes sense. Just the old earth theory that is over 4 billion years old. Now, one of the ways that they date things, you probably heard this, is carbon-14. It's one of the radiometric tests that we have heard people use. And the premise is that every living thing takes in carbon. You and I, everything that breathes takes in carbon, which then, whenever we die, begins to diminish. And scientists measure the diminishing level of (coughs) carbon-14 levels and compare that to what it should have been when an object was alive. And so they can determine or date stuff basically because of that. That's the theory. Now, the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. That's after that length of time, half of it's gone, and then it continues to half all the way down time. So something that was alive at one point, plant, animal, uh, supposedly 50,000 years old should have all the carbon gone. It should be nothing but nitrogen at, at that point. Now, that's science. I've read that. I don't know that personally. But, but that's the theory behind carbon-14, all right? Uh, if there's a scientist here, you know, later, correct me. But I, I think that's pretty true. I checked that out a couple, couple places, all right, on the Internet. We know that's true, all right? <laughs> anyway. So so something can't be dated millions of years old if it has any trace of carbon-14 in it, because that's all gone when something is 50,000 years old, all right? Now, here's the problem, though. In many of these tests, they assume that conditions have always remained the same, because in order for that to be true, they always have had to have been constant down through history. And even scientists have to admit that many of their tests are theory. They're not totally reliable, and they don't tell us that, though, do they? They say authoritatively, this has been dated to be X amount of years old. And they don't put in there and mention, well, we think it is, as far as we can tell it is, you know, and with our theories and such. So some of those tests are not totally accurate. Now, that's what science tells us, though. That is four, over 4 billion years old. If we look at the Bible, though, to get the age of the world, based on the human record we have, it's not nearly that old, let me just say. Beginning with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, we come up with an age of about six to 7,000 years. Now, that's a big difference, four billion, six to seven years. And, and so people call this the new earth theory or the new earth teaching in the Bible. 
So Adam and Eve lived about four to 5,000 years before Christ was born, and that was about 2,019 years ago, according to our calendar that we, that we trust. But here's the thing. You would say, well, they're, they're so far apart. How could that possibly be reconciled? How, how could you possibly say science and the Bible could, could, uh, could be parallels? But here's the thing. We don't have to ignore either the Bible or confirm science to find the truth. And one of the biggest questions about that is, were the six days of creation, literally six 24-hour days, or were they periods of time? And let me just say this, you can have a biblical view and believe both of them. They don't, that, that doesn't contradict the Bible to say that they may have been periods of time. Now, we've always thought literal days. We always thought God got up at six o'clock on one day and started creating and worked till six and then stopped that those were literal days of 24-hour days, right? Ken Ham believes that, and he has some really good proof of that. You know, he can convince you. But remember also, interestingly enough, that the sun and the moon that mark our days were not created until the fourth day. So the days weren't even literally created until over halfway through creation. So that's a little bit interesting there. And the word used for day in the Bible in the Hebrew can mean either 24 hours or an age, or an era. Now, we talk about too, that too, right? We talk about, well, back in the day, which depending how old we are, could have been a while back, or back in my grandparents' day, or back in the pioneer days. Remember, how, see how we talk about that? So we talk about eras that are not totally days. So it's very possible that that day could mean an indeterminable amount of time. And the word day in Genesis could have stood for any period of time. Six geological eras that could have been millions of years in length, allowing for everything from dinosaurs to the Ice Age. Now, scientists like to illustrate rock formations like canyons, and like the Grand Canyon. If you've seen that, it's amazing. And they say, oh, only, only an old earth theory could prove that these canyons eroded over millions of years. But if you'll do a little bit of study, you'll see that new and very large canyons have formed in just a few years in modern history. If the water's strong enough, it can cut a canyon pretty, pretty quickly too. And here's the other thing that occurred to me, because I like to think practically. Could not God have as easily made the earth with the appearance of age as who could have made it appear new? Did everything have to begin new? Did it have to be created new like that? What if God said, I don't want a big canyon right there, and I'll just make it without any type of time going on? You know, couldn't that be true? Couldn't God make it look new? Don't think that could happen? Well, let me tell you what. I I build furniture, and when I get done with it, it looks new. But you know what people tell me? Can you make it look old? (laughs) Am I right? Can you make it look old? Sure, I can make it look old. I can distress it. I can make it look old. I I can do that. God can do that, let me assure you. We don't have to prove that something's been around a million years for it to look old, right? God could have created the earth with an old distressed look. Or God could make a dinosaur skeleton easier than he could make a live dinosaur. And is it beyond our imagination that God may have created some of these things out there just to see how we might respond? Is God ever amused to listen to our wild guesses and our unproven theories that we swear by? God has that ability. So don't let someone convince you that just because something looks old, that it really is old. A lot of us look old. We're not as old as we look, all right? (laughs) What about the Big Bang Theory? Big Bang, we've all heard about that, right? 
As, as viewed through the Hubble telescope looking at the universe, science tells us that about 14 billion years ago, wow, um, that's a long, that's even further than we thought, all right? That there was a huge explosion, and from that explosion, all the matter that forms our planets and stars were born. Now, I don't get this exactly. I didn't think we could do time travel, but maybe, maybe it can be done. How do you look through a telescope and see the past? That's where I'm ignorant, all right? I'll admit that. But Professor Joseph Silk of the University of California, the author of a recent book on modern cosmology, says, the Big Bang is the modern version of the creation of the universe. So science has proven a creation event, but they have no idea how or who did it. Not even science would dare to try to suggest that the universe could have come into being by itself from nothing. It had to come from somewhere, from someone. And if there was a big bang, who made it bang? And where'd all the stuff that got banged come from? I mean, who, who loaded the bullet? Who supplied the gun? Who pulled the trigger? You know, somebody did it if there was ever a big bang. And you know what? All that doesn't just suggest, I believe, that it demands the idea of an intelligent creator who did that. In the book of Genesis, I agree with that. In, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? That does not conflict with science at all. There was a creator. What about evolution? Evolution, we've heard that. That's a proven theory, right? Well, it's a theory for the evidence of humans, but it can be proven. Why? Because of the old missing link. The old missing link that's never been found, else it wouldn't be called missing, right? Even if we accept the theory that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, there is not time, according to scientists, for all of the 200,000 amino acids that are in every human cell, for all of them to come together by chance. It just could not happen. This boggles my mind. I don't, I don't have any idea what this figure would be. But scientists say that it would take 295.5 times the estimated age of the earth for those 200,000 amino acids to come together by accident and bring life through evolution. That simply isn't going to happen, I don't think impossible. Whereas on the other hand, the Bible tells us really simple how we got here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living person made in the image of God. That's what the Bible says. Science will never disprove that because that's truth. Now, also, I've always been fascinated with the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. And if you've studied that, you know there's a difference. That microevolution is used to refer to changes in the gene pool of a population over time that results in relatively small changes to the organism in the population. Changes that would not result in new organisms being considered as different species. Now, examples of that would, would might include a change in a species coloring or size, or a, maybe a new breed, like if you got a labradoodle. Uh, that was um, something that evolved over, you know, breeding down through the years. And so, you know, microevolution happens. We know that happens. It happens in people. You know, we're not as tough as people back in the day, right, that we are today because things are easier on us, and thank God that they are. Then there's also, on the other hand, macroevolution. Macroevolution is used to refer to changes in organisms which are significant enough that over time, the newer organisms would be considered an entirely new species. We don't believe in macroevolution. 
It is consistent to accept macroevolution, microevolution, but not macroevolution. And one common way to put this is that dogs may change to become bigger or smaller or more pet friendly, but they never ever become cats, which is a praise. All right? All right, so that's a good thing. Now, for more information, I'm going to lean on Ken Ham on his organization. So let's watch this short video on evolution. You hear this one a lot. Science has proven evolution, therefore evolution is true. Since evolution is true and Christians don't believe it, then Christians don't believe science and they aren't rational people. Really. Let's put that claim to the test. First off, evolution in the sense that things change is evident. No rational person disputes that. Therefore, rational Christians believe it. We can observe change, but evolution in the sense that life came from non-life and then that life began to randomly generate new genetic information and over time it eventually produced humans is something entirely different and something that quite honestly doesn't hold up against science. In other words, evolution in the sense of molecules to man is not scientifically plausible and therefore should not be viewed as scientific fact. Quite honestly, it is in great opposition to science, that is, observational science, the kind of science we can test and repeat and use our five senses to understand. Science demonstrates that over time, Living organisms lose genetic information. They don't gain it. That same science demonstrates that life doesn't arise from non-life. Hey, Follow along from? if you would. Fact one, there is no known observable process by which new genetic information can be added to an organism's genetic code. None. That pretty much refutes evolution right away because there's no way to go from a fish to an amphibian without adding new information, right? If living organisms cannot produce new genetic information, how can anything gradually change into something of higher intelligence or form or complexity? That is, how can anything evolve from an amoeba to a man without adding new genetic information? The answer, of course, is that it can't. Plain and simple. Now, some have speculated and they have imagined all kinds of things and they brought in artists to produce creative renderings based on guesses and they have been successful in telling a very convincing story that humans evolved from ape-like creatures, but those are just drawings, people. They're just stories. But what we really observe is humans are humans and apes are apes. Now, if fact one buried evolutionary thinking deep into the Precambrian soil, this next fact, fact two, tosses so much sediment on it that not even the greatest team of paleontologists with the latest subterranean gizmo could dig up the remains. Check this out. Never, again, never has it been observed that life can come from non-life. So here are two major scientific evidences against evolution. I reiterate for clarity, life has never been observed to come from non-life, and there is no known, observable process by which new genetic information can be added to the genetic code of an organism. So molecules demand evolution doesn't really make scientific sense. Yet we are all here, and life is all around us in various forms. Although evolution cannot account for this, the Bible can. The Bible reveals that the all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and all life according to its kinds, that is, each with its own set of genetic information. So, again, what the Bible reveals makes sense of what we see and understand. Evolution does not. Enough said. Amen. All right. So we'll close the case on that, all right? One more area where people have struggled with, and that is about uh, the flood. The book of Genesis tells us that at one point there was a, a global flood that God sent because of the wickedness of the people of that day. We know the Bible says that God called a man named Noah to come and build a massive ark or a ship that would save he and his family, and two of every kind of animal from the flood that was coming that took place 4,335 years, 350 years ago. And we know the ark, according to the Bible, was 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet high, and easily held the several thousand animal kinds that God brought to Noah. Again, you can go see the ark. Uh, I'm sure you've seen pictures of it, but just hour north of us, you can go up and see a life-size uh, replica of the ark. It literally sitting out in the countryside, 
It's pretty amazing. It really is. And what I thought was interesting is that there were a lot of uh, animals that they have found and have fleshed out. It was actually done by a guy that I know his family here in Lexington who put the, um, uh, the flesh on the skeletons or wax or whatever they're made of uh, that have been proven. So that, uh, they brought science together with the ark as well. It's pretty interesting of that. And you can have it all explained to you in creative ways using science and historical evidence. But when you read the biblical account of the ark, it goes perfectly with everything we know scientifically. And that brings in one of our favorite subjects, and that is dinosaurs. We all love dinosaurs, right? We've seen, you've probably been to the museum, seen the huge dinosaurs and everything else. And uh, you say, well, how could that possibly be? How could they be on the ark? How could that, you know, ever jive with the Bible and everything else? Um, that's why I brought Ken Ham today here with you, uh, to you, uh, to explain everything that you need to know about dinosaurs. So, Ken, take the stage. What really happened to the dinosaurs? Many people are perplexed by the topic of dinosaurs. Where did they come from? When did they live? What happened to them? You see, when you dig up a dinosaur skeleton, it doesn't come with a label attached saying, hi, I'm 65 million years old and this is what happened to me. We have to interpret that skeleton in relation to the past. So where did dinosaurs come from? What happened to them? When did they live? I want to show you that when you take God at his word in the book of Genesis, that we can explain dinosaurs and observational science actually confirms that explanation based upon the Bible. See, the Bible tells us that God made the land animals on day six of creation. And who else was created on day six? Well, Adam and Eve. And how long ago was that? Well, when you add up all the dates in the Bible, about 6,000 years. So taking God at his word in Genesis, dinosaurs lived beside people about 6,000 years ago. And they were vegetarian to start with. Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 tells us that all the animals were vegetarian. But then Adam sinned, and because of sin, everything changed. The whole of creation now groans because of sin. In fact, after the event of Noah's flood, God told Noah that now humans could eat meat, could eat animal flesh. But before that time, they were instructed only to be vegetarian. So sometime after sin, obviously animals started changing their diets as well. And the Bible tells us that there was a global flood and two of every kind of land-dwelling, air-breathing animal went on board the boat that Noah built, Noah's Ark. Now, people often say, wait a minute, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dinosaur kinds. No, there might be hundreds of dinosaur names, and many of those names are given to different variations within a dinosaur kind. But when you actually work through it, there's probably less than 50 dinosaur kinds. The T-Rex type kind, the Raptor type kind, the Sauropod type kind, and so it goes on. And the other thing to remember is that the average size of a dinosaur is only the size of a sheep or a German Shepherd dog or a small pony or something like that. You see, some of the dinosaurs did grow large like the sauropods, but even they hatched from eggs and were once young adults and so would not have been that large. Actually, there was plenty of room on board Noah's Ark for two of every kind of the dinosaur kind. And I'm sure that God chose those young adults that were ready for the new world to populate in the new world. What happened to those land animals that didn't go on board the ark? They were drowned. Many of them turned into fossils. The dinosaur fossils we find, most of them probably come from the time of the flood over 4,300 years ago, and therefore they're only thousands of years old, not millions of years old. Those that came off the ark started to spread out over the earth, and then because of changing conditions, many animals have become extinct, including the dinosaurs. Really, for animals to become extinct is nothing new. We see it happening every year. 
Now, is there any evidence that's consistent with that explanation of dinosaurs? Actually, there is lots of evidence consistent with that. We have dragon legends all over the earth, just as we have flood legends. Flood legends attest to the fact there was a real flood. Dragon legends attest to the fact there were real animals called dragons, and the descriptions of those creatures in many instances fit the dinosaurs. And then there are cave paintings all over the earth done by people hundreds of years ago who drew animals that they were familiar with, and some of those paintings look just like the dinosaurs. And you know, there's even indication in the Bible of a dinosaur that lived beside a man after the flood. Go and read the book of Job, Job chapter 40, verse 15. For him, the largest land animal God made, the description fits something like a sauropod dinosaur living with Job after the flood. We've also found in our present world dinosaur bones with what appear to be red blood cells and soft tissue still in them, indicating they can't be millions of years Oh, you know, when people ask me what happened to the dinosaurs, my usual answer is, well, they died. But of course, they didn't die out millions of years ago. Many died at the time of the flood. And those that were alive on Noah's Ark, their descendants died out sometime after the flood. It's the Bible's history that explains dinosaurs. All right, now obviously there's a lot of research that goes into that and a, a lot of information. But I, I think the important thing is that we don't have to check our brain at the door. We don't have to dismiss the Bible uh, to acknowledge the reality of what we see, like dinosaur bones. You know, obviously, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but, but um, I just hope this time that we spend in the Bible has given you plenty of uh, proof of the Bible's value and of the Bible's um, credibility, its power, and its content. And now, honestly, there are some things that are hard to believe, hard for us to understand, because we can't personally prove them because I can't prove these things, because I don't know a lot of this information. And to be honest, the Bible requires the things that we can't prove that we accept by faith. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Many of the things we read about in the Bible were supernatural events. We can't explain them in our understanding. The flood, miracles, feeding thousands of people with a small lunch, of a little boy, the parting of the Red Sea, the sun moving backward, the dead return to life. We can't prove any of those things, but we take those things by faith because we believe. You know, maybe you're a little different. Maybe you're a skeptic on a kind of person and science is a real problem for you. In fact, for some people, it is the problem in their life. All these supernatural events, these miracles, they all go against the laws of the universe, what is, you know, what you think has to be. But you know, that's what makes the miracles really that only could happen by a power that's greater than the universe, the one who is not bound by the universe. In fact, the one who created the universe and all the natural laws of the universe, but he himself broke those laws because they're miracles. And that makes him a big God. In my opinion, that makes him even greater because he did these things and then went beyond what's just natural and normal for us. And we've seen today, I think, that true science can be reconciled with a powerful God. But I do know today that there are some people who, uh, who believe there is no God. And to be honest with you, that isn't backed up by science. That, that's not science. It's a philosophy, which basically is a religion. It's a religion called naturalism. And it says that nature is all there is. It says that I'm going to believe what I see, many things that I can see and touch and feel and smell, but I can't prove them myself. I can't prove how they got there, but I'm going to believe those things over what God says. And that isn't really clear thinking, to be honest. 
Naturalism will never consider the concept of an all-powerful God who did these great things. But real science, if we follow it, lets the evidence take you where the evidence leads, even if it leads to belief in God. And I think I told you in some of the study that many archaeologists, many scientists have come to follow God and accept God's Word because of their studies. Of course, there will always be some who will not. But you know, I love the words of Robert Jastrow, who was a director of NASA's Goddard Institution for Space Studies. He says this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And I thought, you know, that is just awesome to think about. That once we discover the pinnacle of science, we discover that God is the one who did it all anyway. And this great God that the Bible invites us to see and know is waiting for us to honestly investigate Him and accept His Word. Greater still, though, He's not just waiting for us to do that. He actually is running out to meet us and takes us right where we are. And that's where we see the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. For that God, in His wisdom, made everything, allowing us to get some insight through our discoveries. I believe that God's the one who leads people to discover these things that make us think, and, and science and everything else. God does that. But the reason that God wants us to know Him and seek Him, and He wants us to find Jesus, the one who was one of us, who came man, became man and dwelled among us, and this morning, that would be my greatest challenge to you, not to understand all of science, not to understand all of evolution, everything else, just to trust a God that said, I love you, and I want you to be mine forever. And the only way to do that is through Jesus. I'd love to have a conversation with you about Christ, about your relationship with Him. I'm going to be up front here a little bit. Tony will be on the other side. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, whatever's going on in your world, and, and share and minister to you today. But we also want to direct your attention and your thoughts now to a time of communion as we all respond to God's love for us, as we take the bit of bread and the cup of juice that remind us and symbolize the body and blood of Jesus that was given for us. If you're a believer today, we invite you to come and share with us in this time as we celebrate and acknowledge what Jesus did for us. If you prefer to stay in your seat, you can do that. Just raise your hand. One of our deacons will come to you but most of us will get up and come forward to the tables. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. God, thank you for the evidences that you've given us. But God, I want to, be, I want to thank you that we can't prove everything, that there has to be a point where we just trust you and what your word says. That God, you have a plan and a purpose, and you made us for that reason. And that God, we only can discover that when we discover Jesus. We give our lives to him. Lord, I thank you so much for your love for us, for Christ. For this time now that we come to share in this communion, and I pray in Christ's name, amen.